Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular, completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. I'm really excited for this episode because we're going to be talking about midlife evolution, embracing who you are with the work of Brene Brown. And one of my very good friends is here to talk with me about it. Her name is Libby Nelson. She is a coach as well. She's actually someone I met five years ago when I was celebrating my one year sober, literally on the day I turned one year sober, we met at a She Recovers Yoga event in Seattle. And we sat down next to each other at lunch. And I just loved Libby's energy and vibe. And she was like, three years sober. She's two years ahead of me and just wanted to be friends with her. And we ended up going up to the Salt Spring Island retreat together in BC. And we were in a car with two other women. And I don't think I've ever laughed so hard. Right, Libby? 
<laughs> I forgot about how awesome that car ride was. I didn't know anybody at she through she recovers except for a couple people I had met the day of that one day event, and so it was just awesome. By the time we got there, I was like, "Oh, I'm good." You know, I oh, yeah. I'm going away by myself for four days. You know, yeah. and now I've like got friends already. By the time we got up there, it was awesome. I know, and the funniest part was like somehow we started talking about how all four of us, and maybe this is true for lots of women to drink, but like who drink, but like completely overthink everything. And for some reason, like when we were going up to the customs office, I think Ingrid had some like contraband fruit that we weren't supposed to bring into Canada. And we had this whole plan of like, just pass on the passport, just pass on the passport. (laughs) The guy was like, do you have any fruits? And she was like, (laughs) you know, like she had overthought it so much. It was a total freeze moment. We're like, Jesus Christ, pull it together. (laughs) It's so funny you remember that. I don't remember any details like that about anything. And I can't blame my drinking anymore. So I don't know. Maybe it's just midlife. Midlife. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about this. First of all, I'll read your bio. Libby's a certified Daring Way facilitator. And let me just read you her bio so you know who we're talking about. So she spent most of her career in the nonprofit sector and then became credentialed as a coach in 2012, so a decade ago. She's a graduate of Northwestern University and is trained in the work of Dr. Brene Brown. She's a certified Daring Way facilitator as well as a Gottman Institute bringing baby home educator. In her private practice, Libby coaches bright high achievers in the middle of major life transitions from C-suite executives to career changers to entrepreneurs and parents returning to work following leave. Libby is a professional certified coach who also coaches in the corporate space, supporting individuals and teams as they struggle to adjust to the ever-changing work environment. She's passionate about helping leaders create inclusive workspaces and in 2021 completed a certification in diversity and inclusion from Cornell University. Libby lives in Seattle with her husband and their three teenagers and has been in recovery since 2014. And we were just trying to do the math. So I quit drinking six years ago and you quit eight years ago now. January 2014. Yep. Very yep. Cool. So it was eight years in January. That's right. Yeah, That's awesome. Well, thank you for coming on. I've been wanting to do an episode about Brene Brown sort of incorporating her work and her concepts for women who are quitting drinking for a while. And I told you I'm the biggest fan of this writing she did. It completely hit home for me, the midlife unraveling. And I really wanted mm. to talk on the podcast about it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me. I love, well, first of all, any excuse to talk to you, uh, Casey, and then also any excuse to talk about Brene's work. You know, I think it's so relevant to all of us, but especially to those of us who are walking the path of recovery or thinking about it. And also, you know, those of us who are staring down the barrel at midlife, which is such a time when a lot of us are questioning, has the way I've been doing life been working for me? What's worked? What hasn't? And what do I want to change for the next chapter? So sort of in the back half or the second half of my life, you know, I can start to live in a way that feels more true to who I am and who I want to be in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing she wrote, and I 
could quote the whole thing, but I just wanted to put this out there in the midlife unraveling piece is Brene wrote, if you look at each midlife event as a random standalone struggle, you might be lured into believing you're only up against a small constellation of crises. The truth is that the midlife unraveling is a series of painful nudges strung together by low-grade anxiety and depression, quiet desperation, and an insidious loss of control. By low-grade, quiet, and insidious, I mean it's enough to make you crazy, but seldom enough for people on the outside to validate the struggle, to offer you help or respite. It's the dangerous kind of suffering, the kind that allows you to pretend that everything is okay. And that just hit me so deeply because when I read it and when I was drinking, yeah, that's exactly what it was like. Sort of the low-grade anxiety, the depression, the quiet desperation, the painful nudges, that, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of suffering that was not so bad that it allowed you to pretend that everything is okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I love that you brought that up and that particular part of the piece. And especially because when we think about the pandemic, the last couple of years, I think that has been really illuminating because those of us who were, and I mean the collective, whether it's about our drinking or other behaviors, our relationships, those of us who are sort of getting along, you know, going along to getting along with, to get along with that just below the surface, that sort of um, suffering, hanging out. I think the pandemic really shone a light on that because here we were, you know, all the busy, most of the busy, the traditional kind of busy, I should say, was gone. Lots of us were busy because maybe we had kids at home or we were helping to care for elderly parents or we were trying to navigate this whole new work environment. But anyway, a lot of the other things that we used to distract us were taken away. And it was like people, you know, somebody shone a bright light on what was happening. And I think that's why we, a lot of why we've seen drinking going up and now people, you know, who are sort of, as we're emerging out of the pandemic and life's getting back to normal, a lot of folks are saying like, Ooh, yeah. You know, that's why we're seeing this big resignation, you know, around the country in terms of people leaving jobs, leaving relationships, doing all kinds of things differently because the suffering, you know, it wasn't sustainable to keep sort of shoving it down and keeping it under the surface. Yeah. And I completely agree with that. And what I've seen in coaching women and just talking to women and with myself is, I love that you said distractions, because we had so much, you know, you're busy, you have a lot of distractions in your life, whether it's, you know, for me driving my son to baseball or back or going to work, going on coffee breaks, having everything being busy so that you can't focus too much on any one thing. And I realized I used to spend, you know, five days a week, sort of two, three hours with my husbands and kids, maybe an hour in the morning, but we're all running around trying to get ready, dinner, Mm -hmm. cooking dinner, cleaning up, and then maybe an hour or so after dinner. And then when you're home with them all day in this environment with the energy, I mean, you know, I, say I was lucky because we actually, my family like each other. Um, (laughs) Early harmonious, that is not to say it was easy, but I know I talked to a lot of women who have sort of a difficult, either sort of toxic relationships or a conflict or tension that is hard to navigate day after day, week after week, you know? And so a lot of people, Frank, 
When I was drinking, I used alcohol to calm my mind, to relieve anxiety, and to sleep well at the end of a busy day. I didn't know that alcohol actually spiked my stress hormone, increased anxiety, and as little as one glass of wine a night reduced my sleep quality by 24%. I was really excited to find Tanasi, a better way to find calm, rest, relief, and to reduce inflammation. Tanasi creates the highest quality, scientifically validated CBD and hemp extract products. Tanasi's formula includes a unique combination of CBD and CBDA in every dose, which is two times more effective than just CBD alone. So if you want to create a sense of calm, to calm your mind, to relax before bed for a great night of sleep, try Tanasi. Tanasi's being really generous with our listeners. You can go to Tanasi.com and use code HELLO to get 25% off at checkout right now. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with the promo code HELLO and get ready to sleep well. Absolutely. And, you know, Brene talks about in her work, you know, the ways that we handle the difficult things in our lives, the anxiety, the pain, that suffering. And she talks about numbing, you know, and numbing as a behavior that human beings reach for. We don't have to be sick. We don't have to be addicts, you know, or alcoholics or or whatever title you want to give it. Human beings reach for numbing as a way to outrun feelings of pain, shame, vulnerability, all of the above. And so there's lots of ways that we numb. We numb with booze, we numb with, you know, pills or drugs, we numb with sex, shopping, Netflix, and another one is compulsive busyness. And I think that's one that's sort of glorified in our culture, you know, productivity is we worship at the God of productivity, you know, at the altar of productivity in this country. And so when a lot of those outside, um, again, distractions, ways of, of numbing with compulsive busyness, the constant running around, were taken away, we were sort of left with ourselves. And so when we're doing that, then what happens? You know, we're looking for for other ways to numb that pain. And of course, as she says in her work, and as, as a lot of us know, when numbing becomes compulsive and we become dependent on those numbing, that's when we cross the line into maybe more problem behavior. You know, in a way to numb is human, you know, in a lot of ways, but when that numbing becomes something we feel like we can't live without, you know, that's when a lot of people I think start to look at, is it time for me to make a change? Yeah. And I know a lot of this with Brene's work is tied to vulnerability. Like we're trying to protect ourselves. And Mm -hmm. as we do that, you know, she talks about this this pretending, this coping, we're more fearful and disconnected because, you know, we're not as openly engaged with life and the people around us because we don't want to share those vulnerable parts of ourselves. Right. I think that's particularly true when you're struggling with drinking. I don't know what your experience was like, Casey. I'd love to hear. In my own experience, as I was drinking more and more, And for me, I was never really a party girl. I mean, I had my moments, but the bulk of my, um, 
my daily drinking was done at home on my couch after my kids were in bed. It was my method of self-care. I didn't really have a lot of other tools for self-care. I thought self-care was getting a manicure or, you know, getting a massage, taking a vacation, not day-to-day practices for good mental, emotional health, boundaries, that sort of a thing. And so, you know, I would kind of push, keep my head down and push through my day, people-pleasing and perfectionizing perfectionisming my way through the day. And then I get to the end of the day and opening the wine was my way of saying, I'm off the clock now. I've compared it often to a taxi turning off its light at the end of the shift, like no more passengers, I'm done. I'm here physically, but I'm clocked out. So as I was starting to drink more and use that, pick up that coping tool and that self-care tool, I felt ashamed about it. I felt like you know, there's a mommy wine culture. I know you've talked about it a lot on your show, but I was starting to recognize that what I was doing was different or above and beyond what maybe my friends were doing. I was noticing that I would want to leave the get together with friends so that I was safe to drive home. And then I would open a bottle of wine when I got home. And I think the more we do that and the more we sort of other ourselves in our own minds, you know, that we know we're different. That's such a vulnerable place to be. And to admit that out loud feels really terrifying and really hard. And so we isolate more, we pull back maybe from friendships, we start to maybe decline some invitations, leave early, opt out so that we can keep doing this thing that feels like something we need to do in order to cope with our lives. But meanwhile, we're moving further and further from that real connection that comes from you know, truly living a wholehearted life to use Brene's word and living in joy. It's so vulnerable that we, we opt out or pull back. You're drinking. And we've talked about this before when we've gone on retreats and gotten together, like was almost exactly like my drinking, you know, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the couch, I would do it before my yep. kids went to bed, just start out, right? Like when I was cooking dinner, and then when I would sit on my couch, I was like, okay, yes, exactly off the clock. But yeah, I was really focused on alcohol on, you know, I mean, in terms of being fully present and engaging openly with the world around us. Um, you know, I would go out to dinner and be trying to like very subtly get the waitress's attention so I could order a third glass of wine before mm-hmm. the check came and it got really awkward. I mean, how present are you in a conversation when that is something you're trying to do for 10 minutes, you know, or like I would even get up and go to the bathroom sometime and catch the waitress on my way there and be like, hey, by the way, could I, I mean, seriously, like talk about distraction. And then, you know, the opposite of engaging openly. I mean, clearly I was low level worried about my drinking and then high level for a decade. And I never talked to my husband about it, like, because I didn't Mm -hmm. want him to know. I didn't want him watching me. I didn't want to have to cut back or stop. So literally the person I was living with for 10 years, my partner in everything, Mm -hmm did not know this thing that was weighing on my mind, you know, 60 to 80% of my day. And he thought I'd talk to him about it. And on this podcast, when he came on, he thought I just wasn't that into him or didn't want to talk to him. Uh, I was really like, 
mm-hmm. sort of defensive or guarded or like avoiding his eyes in the morning. And for years, he was like, wow, she just really doesn't want to kind of engage with me. Meanwhile, I was mm. hung over and trying to avoid his eyes and thought he was mad at me or, you know, whatever it was. Wow. Yeah. 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 It's funny, you know, in Brene's work, um, we talk a lot about how as humans we're meaning making machines. So we want to, when we don't have a reasonable explanation for another person's behavior, our brains will work really hard to create an explanation. Brene gives this example of, you know, um, speaking up in a meeting, let's say, and or presenting something in a meeting and and asking the boss after the meeting, hey, I, I thought that meeting went really well. What'd you think, you know, of how it went? The boss gives a weird look and goes in her office and shuts the door. So what happens in our brains? We're thinking, wow, maybe she doesn't she didn't think I did a very good job. Maybe, maybe she doesn't think I'm a good job. You know, she probably never even wanted to hire me. I've always thought she liked this other person better than me. Maybe I should start reaching out to some recruiters. By the end of the day, we're on LinkedIn jobs, you know, looking for a way to submit, right? Because our brain wants to make sense. She talks about as fact checking this meaning making machine, this, this storytelling that we do in our brains, walking out instead at the end of the day and saying to the boss, when you see the boss leaving, when we used to all be in the office, you know, say something like, hey, I just wanted to check in with you. It really felt like, you know, when I spoke up at the end of the meeting um, and I asked you about it, it seemed like maybe you didn't feel like it went that well. So I just wanted to check in with you about that. And she says, and then, you know, let's suppose the boss says, oh, oh yeah, I thought it was great. It's just, I'm training for a marathon. I ran 15 miles yesterday. My legs were killing me. I just had to go to my office and stretch. Yeah. It's like, wah, wah. You know, here we've gone through this whole You're gymnastics. Like, I gotta day. leave. I gotta talk to a recruiter. How will I pay the mortgage? The commute will be worse. Like that would have been. Yeah. Me. I asked my husband to have a chat tonight because I think I got to get out of this job or I'm about to be canned. You know, I mean, the, the, the stories are brains the lengths our brains will go to, to complete that circuit of the unknown. And so going back to the example with you and Mike, you know, I think that when we don't know what somebody else is thinking, because we can't have that honest, real vulnerable conversation with them about it, we can get ourselves into all kinds of trouble because our brains actually get the hit, the endorphin hit, the serotonin hit, our brains get that hit for completing the story, completing the narrative with something we make up we get that whether it's true or not, whether it's a made up story or not. So thanks for sharing that example, because I think, you know, all of us do that in all kinds of different relationships. And when we're drinking and we're in our shame and we're isolating and we feel like maybe that's hard or scary to talk about, or we fear being judged, or we fear that somebody will ask us to change our behavior and we're not ready to change our behavior, we can really do a number on ourselves and, you know, in between our own ears. Yeah. And so if someone's listening to this and doesn't know Brene Brown, doesn't know Brene's Mm -hmm. work, can you sort of give us a summary of what her teachings are? What drew you to her? Oh, my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you are going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep. It is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. 
It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for this question. I love this question. So um, I first, I had a friend. So Brene is, um, began um, and has spent most of her career and still is a professor at the University of Houston in Texas. And she is a researcher storyteller is how she describes herself around topics of you know, really her initial work was almost exclusively vulnerability and shame. She began a project where she was interviewing thousands of people with the help of TAs and grad assistants um, to ask about their experiences with these topics and, and what does it mean to really live a wholehearted, connected life. Over the years, her work has evolved. She's gotten a lot more into the corporate space and she takes some of these concepts into businesses. She's, you know, Casey and I are in Seattle. She works with the Seattle Seahawks. She's worked with the Gates Foundation. She's done tons of work with businesses, companies, nonprofits, organizations about brave leadership, because a lot of these same qualities that we bring to our relationships, having honest conversations, being real, um, there is no creativity. There is no innovation without vulnerability because to create is vulnerable. To put an idea out there that you're not sure if it's going to make it or not is insanely vulnerable to do that. And teams and spaces where vulnerability is not accepted, where people feel like they have to be perfect before they bring an idea to the table, really struggle with innovation. So in recent years, she's gotten really focused on bringing some of these concepts to all these arenas of our mm-hmm. lives. Um, I first fell in love with Brene way back when her very first book came out. It was called, I Thought It Was Just Me, but it isn't. Um, and it was about the experience of shame and vulnerability. A friend who lived in Houston sent me her book. I was a stay-at-home mom at the time. And she said, I think you're really going to love this woman. I read the book, Casey. I had tears pouring down my face, sitting in my bedroom during nap time, reading this book. And I thought, this is everything. This speaks so deeply to my experience in life. And I have to find a way to share this work with other people. I didn't have a coaching degree. I had been out of, you know, working full time as a mom for a couple of years. And it really led me on my path to ultimately, you know, four years later, deciding to go back, become a coach. I chose a program so that I would be able to be set up to have the credential I needed to ultimately teach and facilitate Brene's work as that unfolded. So she's really, um, that book and that experience is really the root of what led me in the whole, you know, my whole career uh, trajectory started with her. And I'm looking at the cover of that book right now. And what I love is, you know, 
it's, I thought it was just me, but it isn't. But the subhead is making the journey from what will people think to am, I am enough. Yep. Yeah. And I think, I think we are so socialized in our culture as women, especially, and I know you have both men and women that listen to this show. And so it's, it's also true of men, but I think women in particular, we are very socialized to be pleasing, to um, be accommodating, to be flexible, to be kind, to not ruffle feathers, to be a helper. A lot of our orientation from a very young age is set up to try to control and manipulate in some ways other people's experience of us. Um, And so if we're living from that place where we're constantly sort of reading the room to say, what do they think of me? Am I good enough? Am I being who these people need to be? It's really easy to lose ourselves, right? Because we sort of turn into this chameleon who can, who is trying to change our color to fit whoever we're with. A lot of this work is really about getting clear on who we are and finding a way to to really stand in our enoughness of what that is with all our imperfections, with all our vulnerabilities and our flaws and our defects and our foibles um, that we're enough exactly as we are today. Yeah. I mean, and that's hard to do, right? Because so many of us struggle with that, whether, you know, we have some insecurities, which everyone does, right? You know, <laughs> right. Work, Thanks like for being I'm human. Not, right. Not smart right. enough, not pretty enough, not engaging enough, whatever it is. And then also, especially when you're drinking, right? You don't want people to look at you too closely or, or whatever it is. I mean, I think that getting to the idea of I am enough, I know that I felt for a long time, like I had to justify how productive I was, how much I much I accomplished for sort of the price of just being here, you know, Mm -hmm. I bring this Mm -hmm. to the table. And so, you know, to be like, I'm enough just because who I am, like, that's a hard concept. Yeah, I think it's a really hard concept. I the very first coach I work ever worked with, um, before I became a coach myself, said something that really blew my mind. He said, what if people value you for who you are and not what you do? Mm-hmm. And I, I was, I didn't even know what to do with that. You know, I was like, what? You know, I am what I do. You know, my output, my productivity, even if that is not in a workplace, even if it's the way I provide for my family or the way I love and nurture my children. I mean, there's a lot of crossover because who I am comes into that. But what if I have value and worth? just by being human, you know, alive at this moment in time, and not what I produce. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a pretty revolutionary idea, especially, you know, in a capitalist, (laughs) you know, in a capitalist culture, you know, where we really value productivity, you know, and so and an output. So yeah, it's a big one to get you said say that one more time, because I really liked it, but I want to get it right. Yeah, what if we were valued for who we are? And not what we do, what we produce. Yeah. You know, what if it's it's the essence of who we are that is our enoughness? Yeah. And the rest of it's just like icing on the cake. Yeah. I think I that's know, what so do you think about that? No, I love yeah. that. And one of the things that I did an episode a while ago on the Enneagram, which I think is super mm-hmm. interesting, 
And yeah. I was before I did the interview, Jim Zartman, who who was my guest, was kind enough. He was like, I want to type you before we do the interview. You know, I want to. Uh-huh. So we had this whole, you know, typing session over Zoom beforehand. Um, and he asked me all these questions. And one of the ones he was like, how do you earn love? And I paused for mm-hmm. three seconds. And then I launched into like a 20 minute description of all the ways I earn love. Like I do this, I do that. I'm kind, I'm helpful, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, okay. So after we finished, um, he was like, first of all, you're type three. Like there's no question. I I was just going to guess if you were a three. Yeah, completely. But not only that, he was like, because mostly you answered this question. He goes, I will ask that to lots and lots of people. And they will be stumped. They won't think of a single thing. They would be like, I don't earn love. I just, you know, and I was like, what? That would never occur to me. So the idea of like, what if we were valued for just who we are, not what we do? I'm like, yeah, that's hard to get to. And, you know, there are also lots of people, you know, I've read the quote, which I think is so true that like lots of people pleasers started out as parent pleasers you know? Yes. 100%. Yep. Yeah. Yes, we had, yes, we did. Right. (laughs) Yes. And so I was reading and in sort of brushing up for this episode, you know, which Brene on her website has, because I'm sure she gets asked all the time, which book to read first, like when you're diving into the work Mm -hmm. and she Mm -hmm. talks about the first one she recommends is the gifts of imperfection. And then moving mm-hmm. on to, I thought it was just me. And so, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I just thought, what do you, you know, tell me about the gifts of imperfection and the main message in that. Yeah, the gifts is my um, go-to book. I've read it 12 times, probably. I have, you know, caught my copy is underlined and dog-eared and, um, I reread it every couple of years just because I think there's so much goodness and richness and and part of midlife is we're peeling back layers of the onion, right? We we we're becoming somebody different as we let go and shed a lot of the ways of being of our younger years and maybe let go a little more naturally. I think aging helps us let go sort of of what people think, but a lot of us still struggle with this root idea of having to be whatever our own definition of perfect is. And I love the gifts because the gifts is based, the gifts of imperfection is based on these thousands and thousands of interviews of people who report living really wholehearted lives. And what are the elements that are part of living a wholehearted life? What is it letting go of? You know, what is it letting go of scarcity, letting go of productivity as a status symbol and exhaustion, you know, as a badge of honor? And what is it embracing? embracing authenticity, embracing rest and play, embracing creativity and making things. It's it's kind of revolutionary in a way because it really upends this idea of of what success, you know, looks like. And I'm putting air quotes, you know, you can't see me on the podcast, but I'm, I'm putting air quotes in the air of what success looks like. So I think that's a beautiful place to start to really get right to what Brene, the heart of Brene's work. And then I'd say, um, I don't want to contradict, but I would say that in terms of a second favorite book, I think it really depends on where you are in your life, actually. So I think there's a lot of richness in Daring Greatly. I think that's where she really starts to 
unpack what it means to stand up with courage in our lives, whether that's at work, in relationships, um, you know, coming into something like quitting drinking, you know, getting in touch with our why and having the, the courage and the guts to do that. That's a great place. Rising Strong, on the other hand, is the book that came after Daring Greatly. Rising Strong is, is a book about what do we do when we've fallen on our face? And we have to get back up again, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes we come to this work, a, a friend of my mom's actually, you know, in her 60s was laid off from a job in a very public way. And she's a high profile person. And I sent her rising strong. And she felt it was life changing because it spoke to her exactly in that moment. I think for people who work in the corporate space, and especially people who lead teams, Jump right into Dare to Lead. Dare to Lead encompasses a lot of the, uh, one of the more recent books that encompasses a lot of the ideas. So I guess I could go on and on. Braving the Wilderness, if if you're struggling in this really time where there's a lot of friction between folks of different political ideas and, you know, after these last couple of years of pandemic, Braving the Wilderness is pretty popular and uh, powerful because it talks about how can we build bridges and meet people in the middle. So. That's a long-winded answer to no, your short love, question, Casey. I love that. Yeah. And one of the things you said that I thought was interesting was, were you saying that Daring Greatly was one that that you really like in terms of, you know, if you're thinking about quitting drinking, kind of going through those exercises? Yeah, I would start still start with the gifts, um, but Daring Greatly is going to talk about the idea of numbing and why we reach for numbing. And I think, you know, it's one thing to just cold turkey stop drinking. You know, it's really hard to do without any kind of support. But if people are trying that, my hat is off to you. I think it's also once you sort of get through that initial you know, um, maybe if you're having cravings and kind of get through that initial really tough period, going deeper into your own healing about why drinking was your go-to in the first place is really an important piece of the puzzle. And Casey, I know you offer resources about that, um, that help people through that. And there are certainly other resources that are available, you know, out in the public lexicon, but I would say, you know, Brene, is in recovery herself. She's talked about that publicly. And she shared a little bit more detail about it progressively through several of her different books. But really, you know, I think it's countercultural to quit drinking in our society. You know, it, it can feel like a courageous and brave thing to do in light of the drinking culture that we're all immersed in. And so I think Daring Greatly could be a great one to pick up. Mm-hmm. Um, as sort of just plugging into your courage and yeah. why I'm doing this now. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned about Brene being in recovery because I think that is something that is very important to her. You know, she quit drinking many, many, many years ago. I think, it, mm-hmm. you know, 20 plus. But mm-hmm. she has said in various interviews that when she's asked about the secret to her success, the first thing that came to her mind was her sobriety. And she said, Mm -hmm. had I not been sober and trying to live an authentic, honest life, rather than trying to outrun, outsmart and numb vulnerability, she wouldn't be Mm. where she is today. Hi there. 
If you're listening to this episode and have been trying to take a break from drinking, but keep starting and stopping and starting again, I want to invite you to take a look at my on-demand coaching course, the Sobriety Starter Kit. The Sobriety Starter Kit is an online self-study sober coaching course that will help you quit drinking and build a life you love without alcohol, without white knuckling it or hating the process. The course includes the exact step-by-step coaching framework I work through with my private coaching clients, but at a much more affordable price than one-on-one coaching. And the Sobriety Starter Kit is ready, waiting, and available to support you anytime you need it. And when it fits into your schedule, you don't need to work your life around group meetings or classes at a specific day or time. This course is not a 30-day challenge or a one day at a time approach. Instead, it's a step-by-step formula for changing your relationship with alcohol. The course will help you turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. You will sleep better and have more energy. You'll look better and feel better. You'll have more patience and less anxiety. And with my approach, you won't feel deprived or isolated in the process. So if you're interested in learning more about all the details, please go to www.sobrietystarterkit.com. You can start at any time, and I would love to see you in the course. Wow. Mm, that gives me chills. That's beautiful. Um, I don't think I've read that exact quote from her before. And and I would absolutely say 100% the same is true in my own life. You know, there is an integrity, I think, that can come with living life wide awake. That is a beautiful surprise. You know, that isn't why I reached for you know, sobriety. Um, I reached for sobriety because I needed out of this groundhog day cycle that I was in, uh, the drinking for me, I wasn't sleeping at night, um, because I would wake up with all this fear, anxiety, and worry about where the drinking was going. Then I would get up with my kids in the morning and wouldn't be my best self. And I would, you know, be swearing I wasn't going to drink anything that night. And then by two o'clock, I'd be starting to rationalize why a bottle of wine, you know, might be a good idea actually that night (laughs) for various reasons. Um, and so, or at least a glass, a couple glasses of wine, you know? And so anyway, I think I stopped drinking because I wanted out of that toxic cycle. But one of the really beautiful side benefits, the best has been two things. One is just the integrity with which I can move through my life. I was talking to um, a friend the other day who's recently stopped drinking. And he said, you know, I can still make mistakes, but I'm not drinking, you know, so yeah. that's good. You know, you know, I get, I can still, I don't have to be perfect, but I've got that, you know, to reach for. Oh, it feels really good. Never gets old to wake up without a hangover. Um, still love it. Eight plus years in, you know, and the other piece is the, the connections and getting back to that idea of being able to be vulnerable and real with other people and sort of be unmasked and 
feeling that deep love and connection that comes with relationships with other women in particular, our partners, our spouses, our children. Um, there's nothing like it. it. It's irreplaceable. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things that resonates with me very much from what Brene said, and it, I found it true in my own life, is that when I'm vulnerable, and I obviously talk pretty openly now about having used to drink a lot and quit, and it was mm-hmm. not easy to stop, it allows other people or invites them to share things with me that they have not shared with many, many people because they feel sort of safe, right? Like I'm not going to judge them. It's not just about drinking. It's about, you know, they may not struggle with that at all. It's about their relationships or their fears or, Mm -hmm. um, Mm. you know, what's going on at work that, you know, they truly Mm. deeply have anxiety about or mental health, whatever it is, you know, we have really deep, open conversations. And it is so much better than sort of the shallow surface stuff of, of, you know, trying to protect your image of having it all together. Yeah. I love that you said that Casey, because I think so often we share something about our life in, you know, without alcohol, our life in recovery, whatever path we're taking. And it takes a lot of guts to put that out there because people can make up all kinds of stories about us and what that story was about. But I think courage is contagious to borrow from Brene, you know, and there is an assumed trust and vulnerability and, and almost an understanding that like, wow, this person has a depth and a story that is behind this kind of, I don't drink anymore. You know, there's, I think it sparks our curiosity of like, I want to know more about that. And even if somebody doesn't want to know more, I don't know, my hunch is there's just like a leapfrog forward in terms of our level of trust that we can get deeper faster yeah. with somebody who is open and vulnerable yeah. about their story. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to title this episode, Midlife Evolution and Embracing mm-hmm. Who You Are, like doing the work of embracing who you are is I do believe, you know, I say this to clients all the time, you are allowed to change. And when you think Mm. about the next decade of your life, who do you want to be? How do you want to live? And it's not that you're going to get rid of your spouse or your kids or your jobs, but you're allowed to evolve and become, Mm -hmm. you know, a stronger, more confident, more interesting woman who no longer drinks too much and recovers from hangovers and also may not, you know, be the, the drinking buddy of your partner. Like you're allowed to evolve into other things. And that kind of does require going a level deeper to figuring out who you are and what you need, like, and embracing that, which a lot of us never do. You know, we're sort of told who we're supposed to be. And then we spend all of our time and energy trying to figure out how to measure how we measure up against that or right. if we can be that or beating ourselves up because we fall short. So, you know, right. figuring out who we are below who we're told we want to be. I mean, that is the right. work. And how other people value us. I mean, a lot of us get a lot of kudos and a lot of rewards for being who other people want and need us to be. And I read a quote just on social media in the last couple of days and and forgive me because I can't remember where it came from, but it said, if you measure your value by 
or your worth by what you do, you will never measure up because there is always more to do, you know? And, and I love what you're saying. I think midlife is the time when it's a great place to get curious. It's a great place to start noticing what are these nagging things that, you know, I've been or done, you know, that maybe, and sometimes it's almost like we've clothes we've outgrown or shoes that are too tight. Maybe it used to be something we could slip on that, that felt like it fit. It doesn't fit anymore. And, and we're still trying to shove ourselves into those cute shoes, you know, that everybody compliments us on, but we're ready for something different, you know? And so I think it's a brave thing to do to take a look at that. And it can be really terrifying too, because if we believe that our, our value and our worth rests in us being these things, then to be something different, I mean, who will we be then? And I think that's a big question that, that comes up for a lot of us in midlife. It's like, and And, and the first question is, I don't know who I am. Right. Like some people, and I know myself, I'm like, no idea drinking, you know, being a red wine girl, being the girl who arranged the weekends away and the parties for friends and all the things that was a huge part of my identity. So I was like, I removed that. Who am I? Like, am I fun? Am I interesting? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. And I think that wine can, you know, or whatever our drink of choice is, it can really cover up a lot of that, you know, and it's, it's hard to know. And I think that's, but every, as somebody else said, you know, every, I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, every, every new beginning began with not this. Mm-hmm. So with saying not this, I so love it's a, that. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's okay. I'll send it to you after I have it in, I have it in a thing to put on my wall that I haven't gotten framed yet, but every single change, we might not know what we're going toward, but we start, it starts with a, not this, I don't know what I want, but it's not this. (laughs) And um, yeah, that's step one, I think for a lot of us. And sometimes we've been getting those, not this messages for years and pushing them down, pushing them down, focusing on something else. Yep. One of the things in terms of how to do the work of embracing who you are was, I know you're a certified Daring Way facilitator. And I was lucky enough when you were going through the certification process or doing all the training, you invited me and maybe five other women to do a weekend workshop that you needed to do. I was just like, this is incredible. I mean, I love all this sort of inner work stuff. And so we went over to your house for three full days. We sat on your couches. We went through all these exercises. It was really interesting because, you know, just the group that you picked, we had all stopped drinking at various points in sobriety, right? Some were newer and a little more shaky, some were further along. I was probably Mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle. And Mm -hmm. the daring way work, I mean, it various times, you know, I think every one of us was in tears, both good ways and bad ways, you know, meaning both sadness and hope and excitement. And just, you know, like you said, wholeheartedness, I mean, sharing everything. Mm -hmm. And it was it was such a gift. But I also want to ask you, like, what are what's some of the work that if you go through sort of a daring way workshop or something like we did, what are what are the different pieces that you touch on? Yeah, great question. So, you know, it all begins with 
you know, when we, when I work with Daring Way um, with clients and I do it primarily one-on-one with clients where they decide to work with me, I send them a workbook and some videos and we do this really intensive um, one-on-one work where we dive deep into it. I also will go to groups or, or take elements of it into companies, that sort of a thing, or if people want to pull their own group together, then I can come to them. But we always start with this question of what is the arena in your life where you want to show up, be seen and live brave? You know, that's the question that we lead with. It might be in my recovery. If I'm new in recovery, it might be as a parent, it might be at work, it might be dating, you know, or retirement or um, decide, you know, if they're, if they're coming out of college, you know, what, what do I want to do? How can I show up, be seen and live brave in my life? And, and we dive in first and foremost to values, which values gets a lot of sort of, you know, I don't know, lip service in media about family values, that sort of a thing, but really a deep dive into what matters the most to the unique person that we are. What is the compass? What are the our kind of driving principles of our lives? So we dive into that. And once clients are really clear on what their values are, then we start to talk about vulnerability. We start to talk about empathy. We start to talk about what are some of the shame stories that maybe live in your subconscious, your mind, your heart that might be holding you back from being more of who you could be from living brave. I'll give you a little example, Casey. So I grew up in a family where productivity was really valued. And I also grew up, I don't know if there are Myers-Briggs folks out there, um, but Myers-Briggs is another personality assessment, you know, and like the Enneagram is. And anyway, I'm a P in the Myers-Briggs, which is the last letter. And um, the P's are, you know, the folks that are don't like to make lists and are sort of like more like spur of the moment and let's see how we feel and let's play it by ear. Those are like buzzwords of the piece. I'm and like I grew up in a state of that. The absolute. You're the J. You're the oh, J. Yeah, I can predict sure. just by your reminders for the podcast and like how on <laughs> it you were. Um, J's are the list makers, the planners, the tick off the boxes. They feel very comforted and both J's feel very comforted and, um, assured by their planning, by, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. So I grew up in a family of all J's, like this is confirmed. We all took the Myers-Briggs and I was the only P. I was creative. I was in theater. Um, I, my room was always a disaster. I was sort of like in my head a lot. And Sometimes the critique that showed up around that, and I come from a very loving family. So if any of them are listening to this podcast, this is not a criticism, but where the word lazy was used, you know, because everybody else was kind of on it. And I was, I was a little bit more like what some might say flaky, but I had other really incredible gifts, right. Mm -hmm. Um, that I brought to the world, like all of us do, we're all these unique people. Anyway, I've carried this shame story around this word lazy my whole life, you know, and it's interesting because when we think about these identities and we do a lot of identities work in the Daring Way work too, you know, we think about what are some of these old shame stories and how are they running us? And Brene likes to say, if you don't own your shame stories, they will run you one way or the other. So we're either running from, or we're running to overcome these shame stories. So 
there is not one person in my life right now who would say I'm lazy in any way, shape or form. I'm a super hard worker. And a lot of that might be when, if I was getting curious and have gotten curious in the daring way work, because I'm trying to not be this thing that's related to the shame stories. I want to be so far from lazy that nobody could ever accuse me of that or critique me for that. And so that's just a little example of kind of the heart of what we get to in some of the daring way work is what are our stories? How are they running us? And what are new ways of designing a way of living that feels authentically part of who we are and, and maybe unhooking a little bit from some of those old stories that might be driving us one way or the other. That is such a perfect example because I think that so many of these stories are created when we're young, when we're kids, when we don't have a lot of power Mm -hmm. to give us acceptance and to stop from being excluded. And Mm -hmm. then we hold on to them as adults when we really don't need it anymore. It's actually holding us back. And I wanted to read this because I was thinking about it when you were talking Um, It's from Brene's writing on the midlife unraveling, but she says midlife is when the universe gently places her hands upon your shoulders. You know, this pulls you close and whispers in your ear. I'm not screwing around all of this pretending and performing these coping mechanisms that you've developed to protect yourself from feeling inadequate and getting hurt has to go. Your armor is preventing you from growing into your gifts. I understand that you needed these protections when you were small. I understand that you believed your armor could help you secure all the things you needed to feel worthy and lovable, but you're still searching and you're more lost than ever. Time is growing short. There are unexplored adventures ahead of you. You can't live the rest of your life worried about what other people think. You were born worthy of love and belonging. Courage and daring are coursing through your veins. You were Mm -hmm. made to live and love with your whole heart. It's time to show up and be seen. Yeah. Ooh, chills. It's so good. She is such a beautiful writer and and has such an articulate way of expressing her ideas. Yeah. 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 I mean, when you were talking about lazy and you know, believed that, you know, your armor could help you secure feeling worthy mm-hmm. and lovable and all those things, yes. you know, yeah, enough busy and productive to protect yourself from feeling inadequate and getting hurt, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Overcommit, you yeah. know, overcommit, um, say yes, you know, to outrun that. And I think, I think we can, shape our lives around these things we're running from. And we can also shape our lives around the things that other people have told us they like about us. You know, if we are constantly accommodating, if we are the kind one, the good one, think of somebody who I have clients who come to me and, you know, they had a sibling who were maybe the ones that were off the rails. And so the client was like, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to get in any trouble. And so they have and got a lot of rewards and strokes for that, you know, and Mm -hmm. so continuing to behave in a way that keeps them small, simply because, you know, that's, that's what was valued about them, you know, when they were young, and, 
Yeah. It's just like the two tight shoes. You know, we can outgrow those things. And I think in midlife is the time where it's like, get on it because, (laughs) you know, enough. I mean, there's, we become aware, I think for the really, for most of us, the first time that our time here is not unlimited. It is the only non-renewable resource. Yeah. We were talking about that actually yesterday when we were just chatting before this episode Mm -hmm. in terms of shaping yourself based on what you think other people like about you. And I kind of shared that when Mike and I got together and we met when we were like 22, 23 years old, um, you know, his previous girlfriend, and I'm talking from high school and college, um, was sort of struggling with mental health and, and various things. And one of the things he said he really liked about me was that I was happy and competent and independent and, you know, all these things, right. That I didn't basically in my mind that I didn't struggle with that kind of stuff. And, you know, as I grew up and we were together and I was drinking and I was probably drinking to overcompensate for anxiety and a mood disorder, whatever it was, I really was worried about my mental health. I mean, I felt like um, I wanted to jump out of my skin. I had crushing anxiety. I was, you know, feeling depressed And I did not share any part of that with my husband, who we've been married for 14 years. And the reason I didn't share it with him is because I thought he loved me because I did not struggle with that stuff. Mm -hmm. Like he had, of course, said like a million other reasons of things that he liked about me. Like, you know, in retrospect, he also- Our our brains love to cling to that one thing, right? Because it's that one thing, but like the amount of support and I was denying myself and the amount of fear and insecurity I could have spared myself by just, you know, I'm sure for him, it was somewhat of an offhand remark you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just yeah. something it's just he felt amazing. in the moment. Yeah. 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 And it, you know, I'm sure I've told him lots of things that I like about him that, you know, hopefully he hasn't held on to as, you know, God, right. I really like your, you know, <laughs> right. two year old body. He's like, great. I'm 46. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. I was just going to say, I think, I think bodies are a big part of that, that all of us do that, you know, especially if we've been partnered a long time, you know, but the story we tell ourselves is, is the the body that the person fell in love with, you know, had to look a certain way. And so I think bodies in our culture are a huge source of shame and vulnerability for a lot of us, men and women. And, you know, these old stories we have about, you know, the body type my partner likes, you know, we might not be that body type anymore. And what are we carrying around, you know, in terms of our not enoughness and our, our lack of worthiness. And of course, our culture, you know, is all too happy to yeah. Reinforce those insecurities, you know, you know and I've had turn. clients who've said, you know, not an easy process, but when they quit drinking, they feel seen and understood by their partner more than they have in years and years. Um, mm-hmm. Just by virtue of, of talking about what they're going through and asking for support and being honest, because you can go through that pretending and performing in your intimate relationships, sometimes more than anywhere else. Absolutely. And I want to name too, Casey, as we're talking about this, the fact that, you know, I think it holds a lot of people off from 
maybe stopping drinking sooner, especially if it's something that they have traditionally or historically done and enjoyed with their partners, that that story can come in there too. Maybe a partner has said, I value you because you're so fun, you know, or you're not uptight or you know how to have a good time or I love going to, I mean, I went to, you know, Italy on my honeymoon, you know, and we drank tons of wine and I went to Napa on vacations with my husband. I think some of those old stories we can have about, again, what we're valued for can inhibit our growth, even when everything in us is screaming for something to change. And so, again, it gets back to that conversation about checking our assumptions. Maybe we could check in with our significant others, you know, or family members or friends to say, hey, I'm thinking about this. The story I tell myself is that you know, you're gonna um, not think I'm fun anymore if I stop drinking. Is that true? You know, so yeah. so having the vulnerability, the extreme vulnerability to to ask the question instead of just living in the story in our own minds. Yeah, or even phrasing it in a way which I know that I did in the early days of just, hey, what are you noticing is different now that mm. I haven't been drinking the last month? Right. And because I know a lot of women are like, God, I'm boring. He doesn't want to hang out with me. This is hard. And (laughs) I'm laughing because you know what's boring? What? Having a partner who's like asleep on the couch at nine o'clock for having three glasses of wine. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty boring. Right. (laughs) Right. I know. I know. Not a lot of good stuff happening there. Yeah. No. <laughs> I know. I'm like, did we have more sex when I was drinking? I don't know. I was passed out a decent amount. Yeah. <laughs> if I do, I don't remember it. Seriously, yeah. right? Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I asked my husband, like, what do you notice is different? And his answer surprised me. He said, our home is just a lot more peaceful, like, and more mm. even day to day. And I was mm. not mm. a rager. I mean, I was a pretty nice person regardless, but my, you know, I would come home all revved up about the injustices of the world or the injustices of work, or I'd be really high. And then the next morning I'd be like, Hey babe, you know, to my daughter, like, don't jump on the couch. Mom has a headache, you know, like it was very uneven. And he was just like, our house is peaceful. And I wouldn't have ever been like, you know, in my mind, I'm not as fun. This is inconvenient for him, whatever you know, he doesn't like me as much. Meanwhile, he's sitting next to me going, huh, this is really peaceful. Yeah. 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 And sometimes couples, I think do have to navigate some of those changes. I mean, the fact is that not everybody in our lives, even if they love us are always going to embrace and love the changes we're making. You know, boundaries are such a perfect example of that. I know you've had a lot of folks on your show who talk about setting boundaries and, and codependency. And, you know, when we start to set boundaries, Not everybody's jumping for joy because they're pretty, they liked us, you know, how we were sometimes. And so I think part of the the courage, you know, to step into that arena, to use Brene's words of whatever the change is, is kind of knowing why we're doing what we're doing and getting a little more uh, comfortable with other people's um, not loving everything that we're doing. And that doesn't mean it's not the right choice for us. I Or that the relationship isn't going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. Because some partners, A, they really like it when you drink because you're a drinking buddy, or maybe they don't even drink a lot, but they like sort of having that 
upper hand of more moral, mm. you know, condescension. High ground. Sometimes, yes. Right. Or, yeah. or maybe right. if you drink, you don't call them on their ship as much because right. you don't want them coming back at you with, with judgment or, or questions. So, right. you know, every relationship is set up in a certain dynamic and, and, you know, good and bad, it works for people in different ways. And, you know, or you drink because you're kind of annoyed at your partner and it helps sure. you tune it out. So there is drinking at someone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. I mean, there yeah. is a definite period of adjustment. But again, you can go, you know, as Brene said, you can go through the rest of your life, you know, basically pretending, trying to look perfect to avoid or minimizing painful feelings of judgment or shame or blame or whatever it is. But you never get to engage fully in the world. You never get to be loved for who you are, not what you do. That's right. That's right. And I think ultimately in midlife, especially it comes to this question, like, is this enough for me? Mm. You know, and, and if it isn't, then what am I longing for? You Mm -hmm. know, and it might be something very subtle, you know, being more awake in my own life, you know, not all these changes are gigantic and radical, but I think midlife is a time when a lot of them are gigantic and radical for people because you know, maybe this was good enough up till now, but um, if this is all I've got left, yeah, something's yeah. got to give. Yeah. yeah. I hear it from a lot of women. And and even when I worked in the corporate world, I mean, I know I had these questions myself. Um, and, you know, a lot of the women I worked with who didn't drink a lot had the same questions, which is, aren't I supposed to be happier? than this, right? right. I've done right. everything I'm supposed to do. I got yes. went to college, maybe got a graduate degree, got a job, got the house, climbed the ladder, had the kids. Yep. Aren't I supposed to be happier than this? Or that's right. I'm not that happy. Is this good enough? Or mm-hmm. am I just is this just what adulting is? Am I supposed to right. just put my head down and grit my teeth for the next decade? And right. I mean, all of those questions, like you said, is this, is this good enough or is it time to do the work to kind of dig down and make those, you know, they don't have to be huge changes, but subtle shifts mm-hmm. in, you know, becoming who you really are. And some of that's just admitting to yourself what you actually want or that's what you're right. afraid of. Yeah. And experimenting with what you want, because you know, if you have been living life a certain way and giving yourself over to everybody else in your life and everything else in your life, you might not actually really have a good sense of what you enjoy and what you want and what fulfillment like might look like. So yeah, sometimes it takes some experimentation and um, it starts with a small shift and it's kind of like pulling a thread, you know, out of an embroidered thing, you know, you just never know when the, when, yeah. where it's going to end. And, and I think that keeps a lot of people from stopping um, sooner, you know, because yeah. they sort of don't know where it's going to take them, but that's the ultimate courage really. And even if you've already stopped drinking, that peeling back the onion work is really, really important because 
if mm-hmm. you just remove the alcohol, your coping mechanism, your means of having fun, your means of having adventure, and don't do anything else, your life is just set up the exact same way. All the things you've gritted your teeth through, all the same activities, you know, without shifting yeah. them at all, um, you're really selling yourself short as opposed yes. to removing the numbing mechanism and then shifting, editing parts of your life that led you to have alcohol as your main source of joy. That's right. I mean, I think it's hard to search and hunt down those things and create those things if alcohol has become a problem for you because alcohol sort of, it saps the energy. For me, I lost a lot of my evening hours to even think about it, you know, that the shame and the worry and the fear and the anxiety that you mentioned feeling for a decade takes up a lot of rent in our head, you know, a lot of square footage in our heads. And I think for a lot of it, you almost have to, a person almost has to sort of remove that piece so that they can do and explore, you know, the next level work. It's, it's sort of like a chicken or the egg thing, but it's quite hard to make some of those changes. I think if, I completely, I completely and totally agree. And that's why sort of in my work, I always do, you know, almost all the women I work with either want to stop drinking and have been struggling with moderating or for life coaching have stopped drinking at some point and are ready for what, what's next. Um, And sobriety coaching transitions to life coaching. But I always say like life coaching doesn't work. If you're drinking and you're struggling with it, you just don't have the mental space to move forward. Like you have to remove that giant boulder first, and then you're able to move forward with all the other areas of your life. That's right. And I think, you know, ultimately our goal is to not have to live a life, to create a life that we don't feel like we have to regularly escape from. Yeah. You know, that's the big, that's the big end goal. And yeah, I don't work with folks who, I don't work with many folks who are in the process of trying to get sober, but I have a lot of folks come to me who women, especially who have some time under their belts and it's like, okay, you know, I'm not going to just keep living the same life with the coping ne- mechanism removed, <laughs> you know, yeah. something's got to change. And that's a pretty exciting yeah, place to be. And there's, it's just endless possibility there. Yeah. I think midlife and sort of the process of removing alcohol is really exciting. I mean, it's really transformational and I almost not feel sorry for people, but if you don't do this work, it really is a shame. You know what I mean? Like, because it is, you're stepping into the next version of yourself that's sort of deeper I have a, I have sort of a quote on my wall behind me um, on this giant letter board. And it says, maybe the journey isn't about becoming anything. Maybe the journey is about unbecoming everything that was mm. never really you. So you can be who you were meant to be in the first place. Ah, I love that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Amen to that. You know, I mean, that sort of encapsulates, I think, a lot of the things we've been talking about, you know, in this session. And, um, and I would argue too, I have no data on this. So just my life experience in, in loving and knowing a lot of folks in sobriety, you know, I think if we don't do that next level work and we don't start to create a life that feels like a life we want to live sober and wide awake, we're also, we're also really so much more likely to pick up a drink again. Yeah. Because, you know, if nothing's changed except removing the alcohol, that's a really uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so obviously we've talked about a lot of Brene's work at a high level here, but I really encourage anyone listening to this to take the time to dive into it, whether it's with Libby or with the um, sort of daring way, or certainly with the books, because there are a lot of exercises and tools and steps to go through that are so valuable to take some time to work through it. And I know it's easier with a coach or a facilitator to do that. Absolutely. Everybody can get something from reading Brene's books. Her TED talks are phenomenal as a great sort of just introduction to her work. Her website, BreneBrown.com has tons of resources on it. And I highly recommend there's videos and talks. I mean, you could just spend the rest of your life on there and probably never run out of content and material. I will say, I think it's pretty powerful if you're ready to dive in. I really recommend working with a facilitator to do it, whether it's me or somebody else, because we receive a lot of training um, in how to help walk people through this work. Um, When we're talking about shame stories, when we're getting into the depth of where those things got, got born for people, it can be pretty triggering for people. If you have a lot of childhood drama, there are daring way trained therapists that I would highly recommend. If you, um, if you're in a basically a pretty functional place and you're feeling like, okay, I'm ready to take my life to the next level and dive deeper into this. A coach is a great way to go. Groups are wonderful because you get to hear and learn from the experiences of other people. And the one-on-one work is super concentrated and powerful, and we can go really deep, really quickly. Mm. So um, yeah, there's so many ways to access this work. And, and Brene also has an amazing, uh, two amazing podcasts. Um, one that is unlocking us, which is sort of for the, the regular, uh, listener. And then one around her dare to lead work, um, which if you're somebody in business, it's just a, a great listen, so much richness. And she has wonderful guests on there too. Yeah. I love that. And I mean, I think that, just doing the work to let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are as, as Brene goes into in the gifts of imperfection. I mean, it's, it's really freeing. Yep. 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 And I think it's just a beautiful, logical next step to um, living, you know, a life that's, you know, brave and free and courageous and filled with joy. And so, Highly recommend. Thank you so much, Casey, for having me on to talk about this work, which I just, I try to live every day. And I feel so passionately about sharing with the world. Um, It's an endless treasure trove of of self-discovery. And it's just, it's awesome to get a chance to talk about it. Well, so tell us how people can find you, get in touch with you. What's your website? 
Yeah, great. Thanks for asking. So you can find me at LibbyNelsonCoaching.com. And it's, um, I'm sure Casey will have this in her show notes, but it's it's LibbyNelsonCoaching.com. And it's um, L-I-B-B-Y, right? Yeah. N-E-L-S-O-N. S-O-N. Yep. Yep. That's right. Thank you. Um, LibbyNelsonCoaching.com. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn um, at Coach Libby N. And I'm also um, in my corporate work. I also bring a lot of this work into companies and corporations through my work with 3B Coaching, and that's 3BEcoaching.com. So I offer seminars and workshops as well as one-on-one coaching through that work, and um, you can find more information about that there. So um, I also can be reached you know, the new old fashioned way by email, which is Libby at LibbyNelsonCoaching.com. So feel free to reach out to me directly about that. Perfect. And I'm sure everyone listening to this can, can tell why I was so drawn to you. And, you know, <laughs> I sat down at that table after yoga at the She Recovers event, because I just love your energy and how deep you go and what a great listener you are. So um, thank you for coming on. I think I asked Libby to be on this podcast before I started it. So a hundred episodes <laughs> ago for and for me. No, yes. I just I knew that, you know, I wanted to have you on because you've been a total inspiration to me. Uh well, it's been so fun to um watch your evolution, Casey, as you live more and more. I mean, obviously I met you when you were sober already a year, but just as you've lived more truly and authentically into your life and what you want for yourself, you know, and and creating, leaving the corporate sector and and creating this beautiful new platform that has helped so many people and your coaching business. Um, it's really remarkable. It's an honor to be on this journey with you. And thanks for including me today. Of course. I'll talk to you anytime. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Great. Take good care. Thanks, Casey. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.